welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. In our last episode, we discussed a couple of live recordings we did in the UK this summer. Today, we release the first of those, a conversation that took place on the last day of the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute, a UCLA initiative held at the University of St. Andrews on the Scottish East Coast. Called DC for short, the Institute is an academic event and scholarly community devoted to broadening and deepening our understanding of intelligence as it manifests not just in humans, but also in animals, machines, and who knows what else. Faculty come from a broad range of disciplines, as do the young PhDs and early career academics who participate. Reading now from the website, quote, Our world is full of intelligences, diverse manifestations of mind and cognition, of agency and awareness. How do these radically different forms come about? What core properties do they share? What can we learn from minds that are nothing like our own? How can we better understand intelligences by modeling, building, and programming them? Answering these questions will not be easy. It will require breaking down the boundaries that divide traditional academic disciplines. It will require forging new frameworks and imagining radically new approaches. End quote. The sociologist Jacob Foster is one of the founders of DC, and it was Jacob who invited Phil and me to this year's institute. At the end of the three-week event, Jacob gave a talk on the need to develop a social science of the possible. I'll resist the urge to dig into that brilliant talk now, as we're going to have Jacob on as a guest very soon. Suffice it to say that what he's proposing would truly be a science of the weird. The fact that Jacob's presentation drew deep on sociology, statistics, popular art, literary studies, depth psychology, and Islamic mysticism shows that when DC talks about breaking down boundaries, It's not messing around. Since the majority of DC participants work in the STEM fields, and Phil and I are hopelessly ensconced in the humanities, we initially thought we faced a real challenge. How do you talk to a group of passionate young scientists about the intelligence manifest in magic, dreams, UFOs, and incorporeal entities? Well, it turns out you just do it. From the day we arrived at DC, we were both deeply impressed by the openness that reigns there the willingness to question comforting certainties and think uncomfortable thoughts in an effort to better understand our impossible cosmic predicament. In the days before the recording, we decided on Jeffrey Kripal's cryptic utterance, the world is one and the human is two, as a focal point for our conversation. The goal was to foreground the mystery that all thinkers, regardless of discipline, find themselves facing at the end of the day. You want to know another community that's amazed us with its intellectual generosity and speculative gusto over the last few years? The Weird Studies Patreon community, whose members are as devoted to celebrating our unknowing as we could ever be. To join this community and support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash weird studies. Top tier patrons get bonus episodes and exclusive blog posts every off week. It's our way of thanking them for their indispensable support. 
On a quick technical note, the sound quality at the beginning of the recording, when Jacob introduces us and we frame the conversation, is a lot poorer than in the discussion proper, since we were away from our mics. We decided to leave all that in because of the sheer wonder of the tuning meditation Phil conducts with the audience. It's well worth listening to. All right, on with episode 131, Knock Knock Knocking on the Abyssal Door. Hope you enjoy it. proposing today is a live recording of our podcast, but we're going to do it as, as if we were doing it normally. So we'll sit down and we'll have a conversation between us and it's sort of think of it as a kind of performance. Um, however, since you're here and uh, we'll be hearing you, and you, this is part of the, the, uh, the singularity of this particular episode is that you're all here with us, you are welcome to, of course, um, applaud, uh, laugh, boo, heckle, or, or even, even raise your hand if you have a question. We might be so caught up in our conversation that we don't notice right away, but if we do, like, we'll, we'll take some interaction. We're basically kind of, we, we, we like to improvise and go with the flow and roll the punches, so whatever happens, happens. Let's just make it what it is. It's a real event, and if you feel like you have something to say, just say it, and, um, and we'll, we'll try to to fold that back into our bizarre conversation. Yes. Which is, yeah, okay. Okay, so uh, we like to say that Weird Studies is about thinking ideas that are hard to think. And one idea that is hard to think, perhaps because there, it lacks an experiential dimension most of the time, or does it, uh, is this notion that came up in Jacob's talk, uh, Norbert, Wiener or Wiener. Um, I, I always say Wiener. I, and me too. And I always think of a hot dog. Yes, of course. When I think, when I think of early stage cybernetics, I think of hot dogs. Yeah. Um, the idea of machine of, of flesh and bone. And so what I, we are going to start with is an activity, participatory activity. Um, there's no way to get this wrong. I have done this piece with many audiences. You can do it with people who have no musical training at all. You can do it with a bunch of uh, graduate students at the Jacob School of Music where I work, and it works every time. It's a piece called The Tuning Meditation. It's by Pauline Oliveris, an American avant-garde composer. And this is how it works. Each one of you will be singing a two-stroke cycle, two notes. One note, note one, you choose the pitch. Necessarily, when we all begin, you will be choosing your own pitch because we can't read each other's minds to know what we're all going to try and sing. So everybody sings a note. Sing like, you know, a full breath and let it out. And when you reach a natural stopping point with us, no, stop for a moment, listen, and find somebody that you can tune with where you can sing the same note 
And uh, everybody, and that's all that you don't have to know how to do. It's how to pitch match. So I'm going to say no, and I want you to pitch match me. La First note, free choice. Second note, you are tuning to somebody. And at first, it's going to be in, yeah. Um, <laughs> at first, you'll probably hear the person who's sitting right next to you, and that's cool. Tune to them. But as you get into it, you keep, and you're just going to keep going in this two-stroke pattern, choose your own pitch, tune to someone else's. Choose your own pitch. And someone else's. And as this happens, your vocal cords will warm up. The, the slight weirdness and awkwardness of it will kind of wear off a little bit. And you'll be more comfortable. And try and tune to more distant sounds. So try to focus. And don't feel flat like, okay, I got to the end of note one. I got to get to note two. Um, <laughs> you don't have to do that. You can take a moment to stop and reflect. This is a contemplative exercise. It's very centering. And I'm not going to tell you what to expect or what it's like. I just want to kind of go in cold and do this. Everybody into this? Is this cool? Yeah. 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 cool? yeah. Okay. So I will give you a downbeat, right? Which means I'll, I'll do this. And when, and when my hand gets down to the bottom of its arc, that's when we will all start singing. Right? Okay. I'm feeling emotional. That was pretty. That was beautiful. Honestly, <laughs> I never heard it performed. I never heard the result. So, and it is beautiful. Yeah. Is it what you expected? Yes. Really? Yes. In what? In what respect? I expected something like uh, a um, late modernist choir piece. <laughs> that's exactly what I got. Um, yes. But it's a lot more harmonious. Yes, no, there was think. very little dissonance. Although there were like, you know, edges of dissonance which yeah. added to the affect. Yeah. yeah. What happens, of course, at the beginning is that since we don't know 
uh, we don't know what we're all going to sing. Everybody's choosing, you know, so you tend to get a very chromatically, uh, like a, a saturated cluster. So most of the notes of the scale represented. Um, but then that diversity cuts down very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you end up with a, a kind of stable fluctuating system, uh, which is basically harmonious, sort yeah. of like basically constant with, as you say, like dissonance at the edges. And, you know, if you close your eyes and listen, you can hear chords not only like definable by pitch group, but also definable by zone, like right. waxing and waning coming in and yeah. out of focus. Yeah. It was like watching, um, you know, weeds swaying just, just under the surface of a river, you know? Yeah. Like one of uh, Andre Tarkovsky's favorite images was river weeds. And I, there are reasons for that. And there's a tendril quality to all these sounds kind of reaching up. Together. So, yeah, it did have a kind of, it was like um, late modernist music, but with uh, just rooted in kindness. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is not what you'd expect from late modernism. <laughs> which is very often rooted in control. Yeah, yeah. so I, I thought it was really beautiful. I hope it comes across on the recording. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you make of the fact that somehow, I mean, like I just sprang this on everybody. And yet there's some way in which there was, I don't know, I'm going to speak for myself. This is how I always feel when I do the tuning meditation. It doesn't matter the group. I feel at once like I'm an individual making individual choices, but I'm also part of an intelligence that is emergent from our interactions that is kind of making its own choices in a way. So like the ending, the absolute unanimity of the ending. And this almost yeah. always happens, this just general sense, um, as MF Doom says, the intuition that tells him spike the punch. That, yeah. that, that, that sense of a kairos, right? Right. You're just sort of like, that's the moment. And somehow everybody grasps that. Yeah. Oh, I think kairos is the perfect word to reach for here, actually. So kairos is um, one of the many Greek, ancient Greek terms for time. And kairos is uh, time seen from the perspective of uh, the right time or what, what the, 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 the significance of a particular time. So when you hit the Kairos, it's like the right time for something to happen, which is why Paul keeps bringing up Kairos, as I remember, in his, uh, in, in his epistles and stuff, because Christianity was conceiving itself at the time in the late Roman Empire as the kind of this new time, right? This new, but, the, but this idea of Kairos predates Christianity, and what, what I was impressed with, and you said it before, you said, you'll see how it ends. It'll just end like naturally somehow. And it did. And I, I could feel it. And I, I just expected someone not to get the memo and keep going. Yeah. <laughs> you would think. Yeah. And it only but, takes one asshole to ruin the thing and be like, <laughs> right? <clears throat> but no one did that. Yeah. So that's why modernism with kindness. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was... Uh, yeah, I, I, you don't need <clears throat> musical training for this to work, but you need a room full of people who are kind of on board, who are who have a, that kind of sympathetic -in. Yeah. feeling. And what's interesting is, okay, so we're invoking Kairos. So, like you know, to 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 put it very simplistically, you say Chronos, sense of clock time, right, 
is what the police want when you crash your car. They want to know, okay, at 12.02, I was turning left and somebody went through a light and crashed into me and blah, 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 Kronos. Kairos is knowing the right, feeling the right moment to tell your spouse that you wrecked the car. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to focus on this idea of the right time and what that means, rightness, because that's a feeling, right? Yeah. A feeling of rightness and... It's also, as it were, an explanatory layer that's super added to the bare material facts. So um, something we were talking about with a group of participants earlier this week is Evans Pritchard's idea of, um, well, what Joshua Ramey calls uh, the divining cause. Right. So Ramey makes a point following up on E.E. Evans Pritchard's um, epoch making and uh, ethnology or anth- anthropological work on the Azande people of uh, Central Africa, I think, yeah. um, that the Azande understand all four Aristotelian causes. And this was very much in contradistinction to other anthropologists from around the same age, which was about a century ago, a little less. Um, who liked to think that so-called primitive peoples simply do not possess our reasoning faculties. They don't think causally, right? Right, right. exactly. And he pointed out, no, 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 they, they understand causality, but the four Aristotelian causes are not enough. And so the example um, that Pritchard and Ramey both give is the granary thing, which very quickly in Azande villages, there's often a central granary on stilts, on kind of high legs, and that is a shady place where people can rest. And they have termites in that part of Africa, and so termites will inevitably destroy all wooden structures. And at a certain point, the granary will collapse from the undermining of the termites. And so imagine a situation where some people have sought shade under the granary, it collapses, some people are hurt. And we would say, what caused that? When we would say, well, it's the termites eating away the supports. And Evans Pritchard pointed out, the Azande are perfectly aware that the termites did it. But the question they want to ask is, yeah, but why did the granary fall down at such a time as to hurt my brother-in-law? Yeah. Uh, And they want to know, it's like, and so that becomes timing. And so the question of Kairos, uh, as jokily as I kind of introduced it, is actually... It deals with that sense of a sense of why or a sense of causality that leads us off into magic. Because the Azande will say, oh, well, the reason your brother-in-law got hurt by the granary is witchcraft. Somebody had a malign intention that they weaponized against him. And as a result, like the termites, that particular time, that is simply the handmaid to... Uh, a magical intent or a magical result. Right. And the idea isn't that the the witch uh, like cast a controlled thermite spell and then the thermites <laughs> went and did it or, or mind controlled the person to lie down just as the granary was going to fall, but rather that witchcraft inheres in the creation of aleatory events. That's right. So that's the, the hardest thing to write. And we used to talk about that for, you know, when we started exchanging emails, we would go on and on about that. How can you create a coincidence? How can that not be a causal um, process? But what I, what I love about this idea of the fifth cause, that's another way that Ramey describes yeah. what the Azande add to the four traditional Aristotelian causes, which 
in case, because I don't know if they, they teach you all four causes anymore in STEM. <laughs> um, so <laughs> one is the efficient cause. That's the cause that uh, we use in empirical science. Um, but there's, according to Aristotle, in order for something to happen in this world, you also need three other things. You need a material cause, which means that there needs to be something that transforms, for example, the material cause of a, uh, of, uh, a, well, marble, we, a marble statue. Well, is why don't we marble? stick with the granary? Oh, yeah. So well, the, the material cause of the granary would be the wood made to, and then the grain that goes in the granary. The, um, the formal cause would be, well, uh, it's a granary. It's not a toilet, you know? <laughs> so it's like yeah. it has a function. It has a form. There's also the, um, the final cause, which is uh, to store grain right? So that the grain doesn't go bad. So that's another thing that needs to be in place for anything to happen. And Aristotle, of course, like every um, pre-modern person, thought of even natural events as having telos, having a purpose, a reason to be what it is and not something else. But the Azandi add this fifth cause, which is, uh, which, you know, Aristotle still had that in his, you know, magic existed in his world, but, the, but they, according to Ramey, or according to Ramey's interpretation of Evans Pritchard, the Azandi consider this to be a causal um, component. I would disagree. I think it's the non-causal component. But anyways, the, the, the idea is that in addition to all that, you need, there needs to be meaning to the event. Okay. So, so, uh, uh, Phil, you mentioned magic. It's, it, but, but on a more fundamental level, it also just in, uh, intimates a narrative or aesthetic dimension to the world such that if a granary falls on a person, you can ask the same questions about that event as you would if it were, if it were to happen in a film or a TV series or a novel where you go, well, why did the author choose that event then? Right? There's a plot, there's a story, there's, a, there's, there's meaning in the, the sequence of events that is not just simply a function of the events themselves. There's some kind of, uh, in an aesthetic work, a work of art, everything means more than, right? Uh, like uh, you can talk about a marsh, but the marsh isn't just simply a marsh, the way that, for example, um, a scientist might think of a marsh or someone taking a walk might think of avoiding the marsh, but rather the marsh has some kind of symbolic resonance. And I think that that, that idea that events happen for a reason, that's kind of a weird, that's a bit of a misnomer because I think what they mean is things happen for a meaning. Things have some, sig not just signification, but significance. And that significance resonates at the level of story, such that when you think of our world as being fundamentally storied, you, uh, you look at even random natural events like you would look at events in a novel or in a, in a, in a poem. Got a question already. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. If, myths, okay, if stories have causal power, does that mean that myths have causal effects in the world and that myths are a way of understanding the way that the world works? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was, we were just talking about this. Jacob and I were just talking about this. I mean, um, myths are, um, who was it? Was it, um, oh, I forget his name, Celest Celestis? Uh, one of the ancient uh, Latin writers of the ancient world, but I've never read him, so I can only um, relate the one thing I know he said, which is that uh, myths are... Um, Myth is what never happened, but is always happening, or something like that. Um, uh, oh, Celestius. Celestius, right. Right. And Richard Wagner said almost exactly the same thing. Yeah. 
myths are on the one hand obviously untrue, and yet they're always and everywhere true. Exactly. They're structuring so, things like we are. And there is probably some myth that we are instantiating right now. That's yeah. not like I mean, like if you get into astrology, which yeah, I'm I think not it's into, the myth of but, Cain and Abel. Which one is you can Cain think and of which a, one is you Abel? Can, you can think of geometry in mythic terms. You could think, for example, of a circle as a myth, right? And everybody's been told you won't find a perfect circle in nature, but. There's a, there are many, many things in nature which evoke uh, the mythic circle such that it's almost impossible, if you think metaphysically, it's almost impossible to know which came first, this vaguely circular object or the idea of the circle. You know, um, uh, these ideas participate in one another or the thing participates in the idea. So Plato would say, well, the perfect circle had to exist for anything vaguely circular to come into being. And the thing, the reason why circular things are vaguely circular is only because there's all these mixtures down here in the lower world, but in the supernal realm of the forms, the perfect circle prevails, right? Um, that's one way of looking at it. And that, that's, uh, or you could say that um, there are certain causal forces in the world that make things emerge, uh, that, that impose a kind of morphology on, on, on reality such that things that are vaguely circular are constantly coming up such that a thinking being like ourselves would automatically come up with the idea of the perfect circle. But ultimately, um, it's only in, the, in the, the, the chronological version of time that that makes a difference. If you think uh, synchronically about uh, reality in a metaphysical sense, then it really makes no difference which came first. The, these two, yeah, this is the Plat Platonist in me talking. The two worlds kind of speak to each other constantly. So one, I wanted to loop us back to the tuning meditation right? and just sort of say like, okay, so this idea that the Grand Reef falls down uh, because somebody was doing witchcraft or my, you know, my brother-in-law got hurt because somebody put a hex on, on him, put the whammy on him. Um, sounds crazy to a lot of Westerners, probably to most people who are educated in our system, right? Um, and the idea that, uh, uh, the default idea, I think, that we're often working with is the idea that meaning, as you were just describing, um, is uh, a human invention and a human projection. Right. And talking as the way you and I have um, in the time that we've been here, of meaning as something that is in some sense out there. Or perhaps that <laughs> there is no real in here and out there. There is this kind of intermingling of the self and the cosmos such that whatever meaning is in here is also out there. Yeah. Um, this is difficult to explain. It's difficult to put in words. And when you're trying to articulate this entire point of view, an entire, there is a literature tradition, the Western esoteric tradition, uh, to say nothing of many traditions, so many traditions, all the traditions outside of the West, um, that somehow, however, to try and boil it down into a few propositional utterances that can convince you that um, like magic is a thing. Because like seriously, if, if meaning has this kind of shareability between in here and out there, then magic is a thing. Um, that's hard to put in words. And that is one reason why I wanted to do the tuning meditation. Because if you want to say, like, how did we all know? To end, like I'm sure that there is actually a scientific way you could kind of dope this out, and I wouldn't be in any way opposed to that. I think that 
this is getting to like a theme that we talked about ahead of time that we wanted to think about the idea as an idea that the comparative religion scholar Jeffrey Kripal uh, often repeats. The world is one, the human is two. Yeah. And when you say the human is two, what does that mean? Well, it mean a lot of things because there's a lot of binaries or dualities that we could introduce to explain. That's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> But one thing we can talk about is like um, a distinction that you made in your presentation um, yesterday between like representation and participation. Right. Um, the anthropologist Stanley uh, Tambaya uh, makes uh, is um, has a, an essay, excellent essay on participation, um, where ultimately participation comes to mean um, the world of sense making meaning meaning participating in a world that is always already imbued with meaning puts that under the heading of participation and opposes it to causal logic reasoning the stuff that we learn how to do um, the reason that you're here is that you're all super good at that right and the thing is that the the human is too we have both capacities both yeah. ca capabilities and so far as i'm concerned they they don't compete with one another right um, neither has to win. They can inform each other and in fact do constantly in our vernacular experience and on a level that is often almost completely unnoticed. Yeah. So that's kind of, so, you know, like we wanted to do the tuning meditation, but like, I think where we wanted to land is talking about this idea yeah. of like the world is one, the human is two. The human is two, right? Is that a, is that a hand? That's set my hand and then I was also just listening and to hear where, where things are going, but in talking about this notion of meaning, um, I'm curious where the sense or this idea of definition also fits into that. Because I think when negotiating between the, the schools of science and, and art, or science and magic, if you don't think that scientists are magicians, um, there's this question of whether, with the information that exists in the world already, whether we are seeking to sort of converge upon definition of something, sort of seeking to build structure that is concrete and cannot be shaken by sort of moving in from different angles and, and wind blowing and, and time and gusts of different things. Or if meaning is something that is weaved in sort of um, a higher level of dimensionality or abstraction than oh. what a, a core definition can be. And how that fits into what scientists might be seeking if that's definition, what artists might be seeking if that's meaning. I have a long-winded answer for that one, um, and you can let me know what you think. I, I, okay, so just sticking with this idea of the, the world is one, the human is two. Like, there are so many ways to interpret this idea, I find, and they're all equally um, uh, rewarding, I think, uh, when it comes to trying to figure things out. Uh, for example, why do we have this dichotomy or this dualism of science and art to begin with? Um, why do we have endless books coming out telling us about right hemispheres versus left hemispheres? Uh, wine versus beer, red wine versus white wine. Um, uh, we are dualistic creatures insofar as we're constantly producing these kind of binaries. And we do this as a function of, the, of our own intellect. It's, it's, it's essential, I think, to the intellect to do it. And even, in fact, the philosophers who were most um, anti-dualistic in, um, 
intention, people like Henry Bergson, who really wanted to have a unitary idea of reality as zure, as duration, this one thing, are the ones who rely most heavily on dichotomies. Um, Deleuze is constantly creating new dichotomies, the virtual, the actual, the rhizome, the tree. It never ends. The dichotomies go forever. What if instead of trying to resolve these dichotomies, we just see these dichotomies as the sign of this unitary nature that we have, like that this is what we do. We split things up. And um, it's in their splitting that we can maybe conceive of how they are one thing, right? And so um, when it comes to, and then you can, if you, if you, if you accept our, our fundamental dualism, but at the same time want to retain the idea that the world is one, it's we that are two, the world is one, but I can't think of it as a one. The minute I try to think of it, it becomes two because I'm two. So if you, if you just accept that, then you can start to have more charitable uh, um, approaches to those modalities that don't match your own, right? For example, so if you're a scientist and you look at artists and you go, well, they're, they're talking nonsense when they talk about reality. What they're saying, it doesn't make any sense. Or if you're an analytical philosopher and you're reading a continental philosopher and you're like, what, these people are like poets or something. That's not, instead of just dismissing it, like it's not matching your definition of what, let's say, for example, philosophy should be doing, um, you can say, well, what is it that we're all trying to do? And what we're all trying to do as... Um, Jacob was saying in his presentation this morning is solve problems, right? Uh, we are uh, characters in stories and stories consists of problems and we, we want to solve these problems. And so we, um, we develop theories, which include definitions, to solve problems. So there's a, a pragmatism of uh, an epistemological, epistemological pragmatism that I think anyone can adopt without compromising what they want to do. Let's say if they want to. And you can say, well, yeah, how true is physics? Well, it's true enough for physics to do what physics is supposed to do, uh, which is solve certain problems. And um, truth becomes a function of the responsiveness or the, um, the affordances that a particular idea suddenly brings into the realm of the possible. Like it, it suddenly, all these things become doable because I've decided that this is true. And, and no doubt, one day, what I thought was true might prove to have be not quite true. It was true in a difference in a sense that I didn't quite conceive it. For example, uh, we used to tell stories that um, in the ancient days, there were monsters on Earth, and there were great heroes who fought the monsters, and eventually the heroes populated the Earth, and the, monster, the race of monsters, as it's usually referred to, uh, was extinct or is now deep underground or inside our souls or whatever. Well, that's obviously a myth, a myth. But then you look at a, you know, a scientific myth, and I'm using the myth in a very positive sense, uh, which is that, no, the scientists will say, well, there was never a time where there were dragons and knights fighting the dragons and that sort of thing. But there was a time when mammals were competing with dinosaurs, you know, and where you basically get a, a, a narrative uh, of our, a, a stage in our evolution, which looks a lot like those myths. And instead of saying, well, um, those myths were just nonsense, maybe those myths were intuiting something about our past, some kind of um, uh, either, and I'm not claiming anything about ancestral memory or genetic memory here, but by some strange synchronicity um, that we were intuiting certain truths that we then elaborate in different modalities as time goes, goes by. And, and then we get more and more precise in certain respects, but we also lose 
um, sight of other realities in other respects. So definitions, I would say, uh, are essentially, uh, are obviously essential, but always contextualized in a particular pragmatic, I think, yeah. I'm, um, I have to jump in with some occult nonsense here. I always like to Please. do that. Please, I'm making too much sense. <laughs> uh, one of the things that Alistair Crowley says is that all concepts below the abyss are to be opposed. Right. And what does that mean, the abyss? In contemplative practice, in um, many contem contemplative traditions, I am tempted to say all of them, um, but I don't want to get into too much of it. I don't want to be picking fights between universalism and cultural particularism. Uh, there is, okay, so if we're saying the world is one and the human is two, the question will obviously suggest itself to our mind, but can I know the one? Or am I just yeah. stuck down here with the dualities, right? And understanding, oh, I can understand this mythically, I can understand this scientifically, I can understand this artistically, I can understand this religiously, magically, right. scientifically. Um, and what we're saying is like, these are all different dispositions or capacities that we have for making sense. And there, and I would argue non-rivalrous, and we can switch between them and in fact do whether we know it or not. Okay, fine. But is it pot, but this is all suggesting a kind of mediation where like I put on, you know, my science glasses or my art glasses. Can you get to a, can you get to a point where we are no longer splitting things, doing the that human thing, but yeah. getting above the, you know, think of it as a branching tree, things splitting. Can we get to the point above where they split? That is what magical and contemplative practice, at least magical practice on the very like lofty uh, sort of level that someone like Crowley was interested in pursuing it. Uh, that's what that is about. And so that is what he meant by the abyss. The abyss is the point at, below which we are in that world of duality, divisions. A very productive, exciting world. And I'll tell you, in the spiritual scene, there are those who are like, oh, yeah, man, this is so samsaric. It's not my scene. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? This is so interesting. Yeah. Look around you. Look at trees and birds and <laughs> cups of tea. And, you know, like the world of manifestation is awesome. And it encourages our best thoughts, our best feelings, our best selves, at least in a place like DC, yeah. where the spirit of curiosity reigns, right? right. Uh, nothing wrong with below the abyss. What's up there, <laughs> right? And Crowley's point when he says everything below the abyss is to be opposed, that's kind of what he means. But above the abyss, that's where simply because the very faculty of being able to say that something is this rather than that, making definitions, making distinctions, could mention um, the laws of form. Who's the dude who wrote that? Spencer Brown? Is that right? Yeah, I keep my forget. I think so. It's yeah. a boring name that I always forget. Um, where it's like, you know, you start, you make the first distinction and then all the world of distinctions. The 10,000 things come yeah. tumbling in. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Um, the uh, the question is like what's yeah what's up there and for Crowley as for mystics of you name it every tradition so far as I know has some notion of like there is a place that you go and this is and okay one thing that's interesting about magic is it's a, a below the abyss way to to cast 
it's almost like a sonar, like a ping. Like you send out a, a signal and ping, something comes back. Right. Um, I am not expressing this at all well. I mean, the, the question is, of course, the, the, always what happens to mystics. Like, okay, I got it. This well, is how I'm going to say it, talking and, about and the it one. just crumbles yeah. and falls through your fingers, right? You know, right? there's uh, just, uh, I'm just thinking on Crowley's... Um, statement there that uh, his claim that everything below the abyss is to be opposed uh, reminds me of um, this is one uh, not a conspiracy theory but I guess it's some kind of conspiracy theory about uh, that's actually true is that Plato had a secret teaching um, or at least an unwritten doctrine um, which uh, is not to be found in the dialogues that we have but which was described by um, commentators such as um, his student Aristotle um, there's this amazing uh, passage in Aristotle where Aristotle's describing the time he saw Plato talk about something. It's so weird to hear like Aristotle talking about, oh yeah, that's the time I saw Plato. It's just like, it's like, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know if it feels right or if it feels like a DC Marvel crossover. It doesn't work. <laughs> but um, Aristotle was Plato's student. So, so supposedly Plato gave a series of uh, public lectures on um, the one, the one which for, to him, from what I understand, was equivalent to what in the Republic he calls the good. And the one or the good is the, the, the true reality, right? Um, and what we see is kind of like through a glass darkly, a kind of fragmented uh, version of the one. Uh, which he called, um, which which happens, which um, and we experience things in this way because of what Plato called the indefinite dyad. So again, you have the one and the two as a kind of fundamental structure, um, and um, and the question then is, well, how do how would Plato say that we attain the one? And Plato would say, you know, and this is not the unwritten doctrine, this is a republic, is that the, the way you do it is that you move through the various stages or modes of cognition to the highest. So, for instance, the first mode of cognition is what he called ikasia, which means just perceiving images like in a dream. You just see images. So a, a, an infant experiences the world as a kind of constant dream with all these images or um, let's just call them aesthetic forces, like pressing upon it. And then slowly uh, you gain um, what Plato calls pistis, which is faith or belief, that you believe that these, you could interpret it this way, you believe these images are external to you, right? So you, you, you create a world that you have to affirm the existence of. It's just, it could, you could always just argue in life that this is all a dream. Yeah. I, know, I know people <laughs> who believe that they are, you know, they wouldn't put it that way. They, they simulation yeah, theory, simulation theory, or like absolute idealism. That in philosophy, there are those positions. Um, and then third is dianoia, which is wow. These images have show a lot of consistency. Maybe I can measure these images, compare them with one another, and all of a sudden you start to see that there's a lot of stability and continuity and consistency to this universe that could be a dream. And then finally, you start to pick up on the forms, the, the, the patterns behind all this. And that's what Plato called noesis. And noesis is the perception of the forms. And then finally, he spoke of a fifth way. And that would be the one. And he doesn't describe it anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is that in the ancient world, Plato was part of not a 
purely discursive philosophical tradition, but a mystical tradition that included, included people like Pythagoras, Empedocles, and then later on the Neoplatonists and stuff. And the idea was always an idea of the ascent of the soul back to the one out of the many. But you don't do that by negating the many, you do it through the many. So it could be through a scientific or philosophical or artistic path that you get there. And I want to point out that the unwritten doctrine is not just contingently un unwritten like Plato's on his deathbed, like, God damn it, I forgot to write it down. Yeah. Not writable, right. downable. Yeah, it was essential. No one can write it down because, yeah. and this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to put, I'm painting in the broadest of strokes. Um, it doesn't have to do with verbalizable, cognizable, propositional meaning. It has to do with experience. Yeah. Your being a person walking around in this world having certain kinds of experiences. Yeah. Plato says so much in the seventh letter. He says, the only way, like all my writings are garbage, he says, the only way to really teach is to teach in person and, you know, with it. And eventually there's a, he describes a kind of moment where you see the disciple, the student suddenly gets it. And it's almost, he describes it exactly as, a, as you, you would, it'd be described in like a, a book on Zen, right? On, yeah. on, on Satori, on kind of illumination. So this might be a good time to bring in magical war stories. Sure. Everybody wants them. You well, know I, everybody I, I, wants to hear. Okay, like, yeah, yeah. It's like we're talking about synchronicity. JF laid the table beautifully yesterday talking about synchronicity. So let's talk about synchronicity and what this might have to do with this, what, what, with what we're talking about. I'm going to, um, in proper scientific fashion, go and talk about the one really extraordinary, let's not call it a synchronicity, but a resonance, mm -hmm. uh, as we like to do. Um, that the one that is empirically verifiable because there's a publication date. This is the, Oh, right. Yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. So in October, 2019, I had one of the most terrifying dreams I ever had. Like 
as Frank Sinatra says in The Manchurian Candidate, a real swinger of a nightmare. <laughs> One of those things where I literally, like, just like in The Manchurian Candidate and movies like that, where somebody is shown having a horrible dream, and they wake up and they're like, ah! like I did that, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to tell you this dream, and you're going to be like, that doesn't sound scary at all. But it's, you know how dreams are. Yeah. Like, you, it's impossible to convey the atmosphere, the interior of the dream. So trust me, it's scary as shit. Um, I dreamed that I was in an ordinary suburban-looking house. Not my house, just some random house in a dining room. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and there was a big oaken table, and above it was a ball about this big. And it had what I came to know were are, are called peplomers. Those little things that stick out of a virus. It looked like a virus with the little things sticking out of it. And this thing was, uh, it didn't speak to me, it didn't communicate. But I knew this thing was intelligent. And I knew that this thing meant me harm. It meant everybody harm. It was going to do something. And then it did something. Yeah. And those peplomers sort of deliquesced. They sort of melted. They became prismatic and multicolored and they started drooping down onto the table. And I can't quite verbalize what happened, but a kind of transformation happened where the, the swirling colors of these sort of now tentacles, Lovecraftian tentacles, right. merged with the table. The ta this intelligence, the table became the intelligence. The, the, the intelligence remapped that bit of reality. And then it started to do this to everything in the room. And I started to run. And I realized I can't run from this thing because this thing remapped all of reality. Like that. And that feeling of suffocating terror. This feeling like there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no place on earth you could go where this thing would not remap reality. Sound like anything that we've been through for the last few years? This is October 2019. This was October 2019. <laughs> I, I had not heard of COVID at that point. And I wrote to JF. And I was like, oh, it's a nightmare. And then, and then he wrote back. And then we were like, well, we need pay content for the Patreon. So let's stick it in the <laughs> Patreon. And I was so happy we did because now there is a timestamp. And yeah. it proves I'm not bullshitting. I had a, but, an intense sort of premonitory dream. And later, I was looking for something, and I, I'd forgotten this. I reread it. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. That was a really strong... I, I wish strong. we would have done it perfectly, because you did a splendid job as an oracle, but I did a horrible job as, as a, a priest. As a diviner. As the diviner. <laughs> and um, even though at the time I was already tracking COVID, I had a feeling. So I had a feeling about, about COVID and I was watching the, you know, the news, what was going on in China. It's, it might have been a little later. And I don't know. Anyways, as soon as COVID became a thing, I, was, I became interested. I don't remember if it was exactly correlated with this dream. It didn't occur to us that this would be it a literal virus. No, well, it didn't occur to me that Phil might have prophetic dreams. So, <laughs> so I interpreted it in terms of uh, uh, that he had a dream of Azathoth. Azathoth is a creation of H.P. Lovecraft, one of his, uh, his um, 
big guns, you know, among the great old ones that Lovecraft posits uh, are the true gods of this universe. And Azathoth is referred to as the nuclear chaos at the center of reality. Um, and Azathoth is this uh, bloated, um, uh, pustulating kind of chaos, this swirling chaos, this, 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 this chaos that all it wants to do is just devour everything. But it's kept in check by a ring of uh, pipers, pi pipers who play these flutes to keep it kind of um, subdued. Subdued, yeah. Until, uh, and, until and if they ever stop playing, then Azathoth will, yeah, er eradicate the universe. Exactly. So I interpret it in those terms. So, but actually, yeah. that's a badass interpretation. And yeah, I feel yeah. like because okay, getting back to what Ryan asked, do myths inform reality? That is a myth that. H.P. Lovecraft came up with, but what you just described, what Azathoth is, yeah. is one aspect of COVID. Right. Just the nuclear chaos. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So as you were talking, I just had a sudden insight into Azathoth. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I like to fight against is Lovecraft was a horribly uh, a problematic person. He, he was a deeply ill person. Okay. He was not well. Um, and so the stories he wrote, he, he was a virulent racist, uh, from, he started to change towards the end, but he died way too young for that change. He's kind of he was scared of everything and everybody, but he was scared of literally everything, everybody. Yeah. Um, and, and I think his stories, uh, are as powerful as they are partly because he was so, Afraid, uh, and he was he 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 would describe the the objects, the imaginary objects of his fear so so beautifully. But he was also a nihilist philosophically, and so uh, um, I, I I don't think that his stories um, are actually nihilistic. And I think the Azathoth story is a great example that 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 image because it's the the chaos is kept in check by music. As long as there's music in the world, as long as there's meaning, as long as there Aesthetic beauty, truth, good, whatever art represents, meaning making, sense making, or um, always already senseful, uh, meaningfulness, then Azathoth can't get us. Nice. So nice. maybe even there, we can find a way to spin uh, Lovecraft and you know, turn him against himself. And now I got to the place where I can say, say like, okay, talking about the abyss again. Yeah. In that moment of recognition, I didn't do a, a magical working to have a premonitory dream that just blackjacked me, that jumped out from behind the bushes right. and knocked me over the head. Um, most magic is simply the um, engineering of such events that you want to precipitate yeah. them. That one was just free range, right? Yeah. Um, so what I'm saying about this thing that happened to me goes for a lot of magical work, which is, and it's what I say, like a, like a sonar, you send out a ping, it hits something, comes back. Here we are below the abyss with our distinctions and our, our dualities, our binaries. Um, and I'm, my experience is in here and the world, this indifferent matter is sort of out there, over there. And I have this moment that punctures that membrane between in here and out there. Yeah. And what happens is an experience like I can narrate it in a kind of an exciting, spooky way, but like ultimately I'm, I am powerless to convey that sort of sense of like the universe is this total one thing of which, which I am a part and what it is made up of is meaning yeah, or yeah. stories, if you, you like. Know, you know, Carl Jung and his writings on synchronicity, 
Um, Carl Jung, you may know, was uh, deeply, deeply into medieval alchemy towards the end of his career, uh, or for much of his career, but really obsessively at the end, because he thought the medieval alchemy was basically a, a, a kind of um, uh, providing us with a kind of um, geography, a map of the psyche, you know, as as well as as Western civilizations was it was able to to understand it. And of course, he he looked at Eastern forms of alchemy as you know as equally um, important in in, in this uh, project of trying to map out the psyche. But the point is that when he spoke of synchronicity and synchronicity, for those who weren't there yesterday, you know, it was basically are meaningful coincidences, such as the one that Phil described. So there's an interior event, a dream, a subjective event, which correlates with uh, an external event, the virus. And if you are willing to say that it's more than a coincidence, um, which it is, because we wouldn't be talking about it if it was just like this bottle happens to be on this table. No, the, what makes the, the, the event meaningful is that he had the dream and then this happened. Well, then uh, Carl Jung said that those types of events, those synchronistic events, point to what, what the alchemists call the unus mundus, which is the one world. So, so it's right back to where we started. The, uh, world is one. One, the world is one. But we can't, we can only see it in glimpses, right? You can't um, live there. Yeah. You, you can't, can't, can't have a nice little vacation cottage up there in the Unus yeah. Mundus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we, yeah. We, are, we are creatures below the abyss, and that is cool. I like that. I like being below the abyss. I love it. That's where the party is. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Yes. Um, I'm seeing a hand. Yeah, yeah I saw a hand earlier. Hand. I'm sorry, you had your hand up. I, I wanted to ask about that idea of the one versus the dual, like duality in humans, which is sort of like natural oppositional. And you hear what you guys have to say Okay, first, I, I got to say, ego death for me is always something that I'm like, um, people can get the wrong idea from that and think the ego is a bad thing they have to destroy. Uh, in other words, go mad, which is the occupational hazard of magicians going mad. Not kidding. Uh, and so if you're, some would argue they were already mad when they started doing magic. <laughs> but <you> know, yeah, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> but we could kind of think of it as like the ego as... This, I mean, like, I like having a self. So, like, yeah. it's my friend. But at the same time, it is, as you say, the elf in the room. It is the, the ego, the sense of a self. The sense of being a person is what prevents us from seeing that above the abyss unit of thing. And so, like, I mentioned in my talk that I am a Zen Buddhist and a Zen Buddhist practitioner for many years. And in, but you know, like there are many contemplative traditions, but Zen Buddhism is a contemplative tradition. It's very heavily, heavily meditation focused. Um, but there are many others. Um, Thomas Doctor is from the Tibetan tradition. Um, uh, JF is a sort of mystical Catholic. I mean, like, you know, got some interfaith very, dialogue yeah. for your ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a call back to <laughs> that's a call his, back to his choice he opened an episode by saying that yeah. interfaith dialogue for your ass <laughs> <laughs> i just i just like to be super aggressive about it yeah, to, yeah. yeah. um but uh so i'm I, I i'm saying all of this because i loathe and despise people who are like 
I have the one true faith, please read this pamphlet. Like, I am not about that, right? Uh, there are many, many, many paths to this, but like in any kind of contemplative path, um, it is about quieting the discursive mind. And there's like simple things you do, like just follow the breath, in breath, out breath, uh, feel the tickle of breath at your nose. Uh, a lot of insight meditators do that or whatever it is, or it can be ritual, or it can be, I don't want to do an exhaustive list, which would be impossible anyway, but like, the point is that these are things that allow us to sort of tame the mind, not kill the mind, but tame it. Yeah. Lull it to sleep like those pipers around <laughs> Azathoth. Yeah. Right? And, also, yeah, and, and, yeah. and when that happens, and sometimes I almost feel like I'm in a hot air balloon, like drifting with like and all, these, all these voices mm. in my head. And it's not like I'm trying to build some structure to stifle them. I'm trying to gently get them out of the way. So that, and, and uh, la, 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 where are we going to No, no, I, I totally. And once just, again, and, and again, I feel it crumbling as I try no, to yeah, articulate We're getting too it. close to this. We're like a Prometheus, but we never learn. We keep trying to get up there. Mel, our wings melt. Not Prometheus. What's his name? Icarus. And falling again and again. Okay. But, uh, oh, oh, you're. But okay. the, yeah, I wanted to say. Say your thing. And then Alex has been super patient. Okay, okay. I want to make sure. Quickly, that we get to uh, Alex. ego death. Yeah. Um, I think that I agree with what you're saying. You know, it's um, again, Plato, you know, in uh, Phaedrus, where he describes the soul, the charioteer of the soul. And there's a chariot and there's two horses. There's one horse that always wants to go up. One horse always wants to go down. And the charioteer is just like going all over the place. And the, the question is to get the horses to work together. And I think one of the things about um, about ego is that it, it tends to 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 it tends to be very afraid. And so uh, out of fear, it grasps and it hangs on to things like a per drowning person hanging on to others. And uh, the question is just to learn to float. It, that doesn't mean the ego disappears, um, uh, but the ego becomes relativized. The ego is, as Paul Klee said, a creature on a star among stars instead of seeing itself as the sun. You know, like the ego can coexist with other egos. And I think that's probably... I was going to say also that... beautiful. That, that, I dig that. that. Yeah. The, the, the scientific method or the practice of science is, I think, inherently a kind of ascetic practice insofar as it encourages a kind of ego death. Um, uh, in science, self-effacement, right? Erasing yourself from a situation, trying to become minimally, minimally present such that something can just happen and observing it and becoming almost just like an I, registering an event, is an incredibly spiritual thing to do. All the ego in science, com science comes into in the cultural side, the culture of science, where it's like, ah, my asceticism led to this discovery and now I'll be rich or I'll be... You I know, would I'll cut my thumb off. And so the ego is always finding a way. And it's the same though, you, you go to a Buddhist monastery and you'll find, you know, certain people are going to be in this massive competition. Like, can you do Sashin for 13 days? Because oh. I did 14, you know. And I used to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm much nicer now, but like. Ego yeah, always comes like, in. You see, but, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a great book by Chokyam Trungpa, who's from the uh, Tibetan Vajrayana tradition called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, which is one of the most brilliant deconstructions, br brilliant analyses and takedowns of this capacity because like, it's human beings in those monasteries. Yeah. Human beings who are living below the abyss and making distinctions yeah. and like scientists living below the abyss and making distinctions. And again, 
that's okay. But yeah. we need people like Trungpa. You need folks like that who have this kind of like diamond hard understanding of the ways in which we will always screw it up. Yeah. And it's like, it's like systole and diastole, in breath and out breath. Screw it up. Come back to the center. Screw it up. Come back to the center. Okay, I'm sorry, Alex. You've been so patient. Yeah. That's yeah. It's a wonderful way of seeing it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I feel like you just described um, the practice of consulting the I Ching. Yeah. Which before we get to that, I just want there's there's one thick end issue. We've been we've been yeah. at the thin end for a while now. Let's I know. Go to the thick I've end dragged us over to yeah. the thin end. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. We don't usually give spiritual instructions on weird studies. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, <laughs> is that what we've been doing? No, 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 no. It's that no. guy who was accusing us of becoming gurus will not be happy. Um, <laughs> that is the absolute last thing I ever want to do. No, you don't want to be the cult leader. He says in his t-shirt, cult member. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, let's go back to this idea that you had a, a, a prophetic dream. Okay, because I, I don't know. I, I don't know many of you uh, very well. I've gotten to know some of you a little bit over the last few days, but I, I have a feeling that that's probably not an easy idea for everybody here, right? That someone might have a dream and that it might have some kind of actual connection with events coming on the horizon. Now, I also think that even the most, most skeptical person in this room will agree that people... Uh, uh, experience dreams that they interpret to be prophetic, right? Precisely because the events in the dream happen. So the, the objection would be, you, it's a coincidence. You had a dream about something happening, then it happened, but there is no causal connection. Interestingly, Jung would say, you're right. The whole point is that there's no causal connection. Synchronicity is a non-causal connecting principle, but that's another story. The, the, the point is that we... It's been, what, 400 years now that we've had uh, modern science and basically the epistem of, of, of modern materialism has kind of dominated increasingly so as those years have progressed. But certainly since the 19th century, there seems to be this kind of default mode, right, for existing in the West, which is that uh, we live in a material universe with material forces, they're quantifiable, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all the things that people used to believe in um, Charles Taylor summarizes beautifully, beautifully. he says, um, uh, uh, spirits, demons, and moral forces, those things don't exist, right? But the thing is that in those hundreds of years, people have continued to experience dreams that they interpret to be prophetic. 
they've continued to see things that others say don't exist. For example, um, I don't know, Bigfoot, <laughs> uh, goblins. I was once assailed by a goblin. It was not pleasant. Um, and, uh, and people keep experiencing all the things that they would experience in a kind of pre-modern enchanted world setting. None of that has stopped. In fact, you might argue that since it, it happens all the time still, um, and there's a lot more people, there's more goblin encounters now than ever. <laughs> and so the question is, what do we make of the fact that these things happen? Now, it's, there's the easy answer, which would be, well, it's, it's, these, are, these are imaginary, these are unconscious events, these are, these, are, these are artifacts of consciousness and all that. But I, 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 almost, I almost feel bad for bringing this up. The recent hearings, the recent things in Congress about UFOs. Has anybody here been following that stuff? Yeah. Ryan has been following it. No one here has been following this stuff. Because this is, this is diverse intelligences. Like, I'll give you a diverse... <laughs> I got your diverse intelligences right here, pal. All right. Yeah. Ryan? Right. Right. And, and, and they have combined, they have like eyewitness combined with radar and machine. Oh, yeah. So, so the, basically the U.S. government has admitted that there are things flying around the atmosphere that they don't understand. They're not making claims. They're not saying they're from Sirius or, uh, you know, Alpha Centauri. That nobody's making any claims. But these things are real. These things were real all along. People who are seeing these things decades ago, in fact, centuries ago, if you look at certain, uh, you know. So the point is that I'm not saying anything about, I'm not telling you that UFOs are, you know, aliens from another planet. I'm not telling you that they're uh, fairies, although that's probably a better theory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I am saying that these things are happening and that it seems to me that we, there's an opportunity here to think about reality in ways that we haven't allowed ourselves to do for some time and to take the tools of science and start to consider possibilities that would have been completely off the table until very recently and to think of things like prophetic dreams and to say, well, instead of dismissing it, what if, how could that be possible? How can I conceptualize something like that? It seems to me that if we're going to be engaging in a, science, a social science of the possible, as, as, um, as Jacob was, was urging us to do this morning, uh, it seems that we're going to have to get comfortable with uncomfortable ideas again. And maybe not everything that we kicked to the curb in the modern turn uh, deserves to be there. You know, maybe there are really weird things going on in this universe and that a scientific... Uh, exploration of those things might actually yield, I don't know, something. Something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a wrap.
If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.